Hey, I'm in Japan. I'm Frank Ling. And from Chicago, Illinois, I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Mr. Brad Manson will join us to discuss Jacques Cousteau. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world-famous question a week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. science show well the world is composed mainly of water and the remarkable world hidden beneath the world's oceans may have been forever a mystery for most of us were not for one man Jacques Cousteau and his show the undersea world of Jacques Cousteau but the story of the man has often been unexplored to the same depth and join us today to talk about his remarkable story is Mr. Brad Manson. Mr. Manson is the renowned author of works detailing the wonders of the sea including Descent, the heroic discovery of the abyss and the New York Times bestseller, Titanic's Last Secrets. His latest work, Jacques Cousteau, Sea King, explores the life and times of the famed adventurer for a general audience. So Mr. Manson, thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Hi, Charles. Good to be here. It's good to have you back on the program. I think we had you on a little while ago for uh, your book, Descent, and uh, we're glad to have you back. I know. It's, it's a motivation to write faster so I can <laughs> be on even more often. <laughs> well, we do recall you, you mentioning the project, Jacques Cousteau. Uh, why uh, did you decide to write the uh, biography? Well, I had finished the story of uh, William Beebe and Otis Barton, who were the first two human beings to descend beyond sunlight in the bathosphere during the 1930s, and really had a theory that dated back quite a ways to using fascination to kindle interest in the ocean rather than kind of beating people over the head with advocacy or hard science. And so I, I had written a number of books on evolution in the ocean, ocean creatures, and functional morphology and body plans and things like that and really decided that I wanted to tell stories of heroes of the ocean. And Beebe and Barton were the first two that came across for me. And then after I finished that, I looked around and I realized no one had done a complete biography of Jacques Cousteau, who died in 1997. Uh, there had been a couple of books written, or many books written about him. Most of them were kind of polemics, you know, very celebratory and not really critical biographies looking at the man's life. And I was shocked to find that was true. And, and the people I work with at my publisher uh, agreed. Uh, so off I went. I, I, that was five years ago when, when I made that decision. Well, why, why do you think his life had not really been explored to that level in the literature? Well, part of it was that Cousteau had a very complicated family life, and there had been a lot of litigation among his descendants about who has the right to what in his life, and therefore there were a lot of closed doors for biographers who weren't quite as stubborn as I am, I suppose. It's <laughs> actually one of the very fascinating features of the book, the establishment of Cousteau legacy and uh, the media empire of Cousteau. It was remarkable in one particular sense, which was that it was unintentional. I don't think Cousteau ever really saw himself becoming one of the most ten recognizable faces on planet Earth, uh, which he certainly did after the undersea world of Jacques Cousteau, which was a series that ran on ABC from uh, 1967 to 1977. But he then went on to work to make documentaries for PBS. He made a dozen for PBS and then made more than 40 for Ted Turner's cable network after that. So, I mean, the, the Cousteau 
production brand kept right on rolling, it wasn't anywhere near as much fun as it was in the early days, the 50s, when they had just gotten Calypso. And it was him and a bunch of French sailors and Speedos racing around the Mediterranean, having a good time and doing something that nobody had ever done before, which was take incredible pictures underwater. Uh, I wonder if maybe you could actually talk about his early life and how he became interested in the sea. Oh, sure. He was the son of a notaire, a kind of a lawyer in a French village, Saint-André de Cubzac, which is near Bordeaux. It made my research much easier to be in the center of the greatest wine-growing region in the world. I, <laughs> I love going to Bordeaux, which I did several times. And there he met his wife. Cousteau's uh, father met Cousteau's mother. Her name was Elizabeth, and she was the daughter of a wealthy vineyard owner, uh, owning family there. And uh, he didn't stay there very long. Cousteau's father didn't. Uh, he, he became became a factotum for a series of American expatriates, wealthy American expatriates, and he was basically their tennis and their bridge partner and traveled around, and so did the family. So Cousteau actually lived in New York City when he was a teenager, and when he was a teenager, he got fascinated. He was kind of a shy kid, but very mechanically inclined, and he got real interested in French cinema and making movies, and actually with his allowance, he had saved enough money to uh, buy an Eclair camera. Pathé, actually, it was, I believe, uh, the Pathé brothers in, in Paris were the pioneers of uh, the kind of camera that a, a 13-year-old boy could own, which he did, and he got interested in that, and then eventually he was had difficulty in school, so he was sent to boarding school, and eventually qualified for the French Naval Academy. He was not a scientist. He was trained as an aviator, then washed out of there, and then became a gunnery officer after some injuries suffered in a car accident, which took him to the Mediterranean, and that is where he began skin-diving, and where in 1943 he and an engineer named Emile Gagnon and a group of friends that Cousteau had on the Mediterranean would pioneer the invention and the, the, the development and use of the aqualung, which was the key to seeing what was underwater. Uh, and not just used for seeing what's underwater, but was actually useful during the war for uh, resistance types of efforts. Yeah, uh, the Navy quickly recognized what Cousteau was up to, had enormous military potential, and after the war they allowed him and uh, Philippe Taillez, another of his collaborators, along with Frederick Dumas, the three of them were the, the real pioneers of the Aqualung. They started the Undersea Research Group for the Navy, and for four years they spent the first couple of years clearing mines and doing things like that, but then they got involved in archaeological research, and of course all the time Cousteau is trying to figure out better ways to make his camera work underwater. By this time, he's got sophisticated housings and lights and starting to come along really well. And in early 50s is when he makes his, uh, with Gets Calypso and makes his very first uh, feature film, which is uh, based on a book that had been written uh, with a writer, ghostwritten with a writer named James Dugan, about Cousteau's development of the aqualung and learning to dive and take photographs underwater. It's called The Silent World. You can still buy it. Uh, National Geographic has issued a nice reprint of that book. And then he made a film of the same name which won an Oscar and was a huge success, and he was on his way to celebrity and fame at that point. Hmm. There's sort of an interesting story about how he actually acquired uh, the famed boat, the Calypso. Yeah, the Navy had given him a, a captured German tugboat. They named the Ellie Monnier after one of their members who had gotten blown up while clearing mines with an aqualung. And so they had the Ellie Monnier for four years, and it was a terrible boat for launching divers and recovering boats and things like that, a real high stern. So Cousteau wanted to look for another boat. Uh, he, really, what he wanted to do was build one, so he goes to the admiral in charge of his base in Toulon. This is in uh, 1949, 1950, right around in there. And he says, Admiral, uh, I'd like to build a 
new boat and here are the plans and what do you say? And the Admiral said, well, when you're an Admiral, you can build your own boat. But for now, Lieutenant Commander Cousteau, go back to work. <laughs> so Cousteau and his wife, Simone, who was very much a part of his life and his adventures and development of the Aqualung because of her connections with her family, which uh, her father was the director of a company that pioneered compressed air. And that happy juxtaposition of Cousteau and Simone uh, made the Aqualung possible. Anyway, uh, Simone reminded Cousteau that he had met this man during World War II, Lowell Guinness, who said, hey, after the war, if you want to get involved in ocean exploration, give me a call. So Cousteau called Guinness. He sent him the plans. Uh, Lowell Guinness was one of the heirs of the brewery fortune, Guinness Brewery fortune. Cousseau sent him the plans, and Guinness says, listen, there's no reason to build a boat now. There are boats laying all over the world. There are thousands of boats that were used during World War II that we can buy cheaply. So that's where Calypso came from. She had been a minesweeper, actually built right here. where I'm, I'm in Seattle at the moment, or on an island near Seattle. But Calypso had been built as a minesweeper for the British uh, in 1942. So he finds her in, in Malta, where she was serving as a ferry boat, and that's where Calypso comes from. Mm-hmm. And, and is this fame boat that really took him on many of the adventures and documentation of the seas that we know? It is. And hey, it was Spruce. Calypso was uh, upon some of uh, Simone's jewels to repair the engines on Calypso when they first got it. And, and their first work uh, that Calypso had was as a charter for uh, British Petroleum, an oil company exploring for oil in the Red Sea. Uh, Cousteau did an awful lot of pioneering work on offshore oil development, which is very ironic in the sense that he was one of the great environmental sages and protectors of the ocean. And yet he really did enable with his development of saturation diving, and of uh, techniques for exploring the seafloor, not to mention the techniques that uh, divers use now to install oil rigs all over the world. Uh, But Cousteau, while he was doing all of this, was always filming, and that's where it um, transpired that he became the uh, celebrated maker of two Oscar-winning films. And then David Walper, a producer in Hollywood, said, hey, this would look great on television. And it was David Walper who painted Calypso bright white, put Cousteau and his divers in uh, silver diving suits instead of black diving suits and yellow helmets and really made them the celebrities that they that everybody remembers. Right, and, and the undersea world of Jacques Cousteau is really a thing that launched him into world renown. Absolutely, and it was during the process of this that he, in the early 70s, that he began to realize that the Mediterranean of the 40s, where he had really first started diving, had deteriorated to such a point where it was just toxically polluted, and this outraged him, and he really was very much a homegrown environmentalist. I mean, he, everything for him was very personal. He just couldn't stand what had happened to the incredibly lush undersea flora and fauna that he had witnessed in the 40s in just 30 years of his life. He was just shocked by what had happened. And of course, up until this time, all of us are, all humanity is thinking, gee, the ocean is impervious to humans. Uh, We can do just about anything we want to it. We dump everything into it. We do anything we want, and we can't hurt it. Well, it was really Cousteau and his witnessing what was going on in the ocean that led us to understand that uh, this this thing is incredibly powerful, incredibly strong, but it's incredibly fragile at the same time, and we have to take care of the sea. Mm. And this was really the thing that drove him most of his life into the latter part of his life was conservation. 
Gotcha. Very much. He started the Cousteau Society in 1974, and that became the kind of locus for all of his environmental activities and his environmental advocacy, and he became really the throbbing heart of the environmental movement. After Rachel Carson, I believe Cousteau, Rachel Carson, uh, Rachel Carson who adored Cousteau, really loved his work, uh, favorably reviewed his book, The Silent World in the New York Times, and, and, and was a big supporter of Cousteau. And then Cousteau really inherited the mantle from Rachel Carson. And Rachel Carson, for those of you listeners who don't know who she was, she wrote a book called Silent Spring, which basically said that if a bird eats poison in North America and flies to South America and lays an egg, he, that bird has transmitted this poison, or vice versa. And that's essentially all of us starting to understand that the head bone is connected to the neck bone, that we're all related, that we can't do something here and expect everything to be fine in a different location, that the world is connected. And Cousteau followed that and, and went on with it and, of course, uh, you know, spent the greater part of his last decade and a half on Earth as primarily an icon of the environmental movement. But, but yet he himself became a little bit embittered or despondent about the state of affairs of the globe and wondered whether or not it could be turned around. Very much. In fact, among the discussions I had with his son, Jean-Michel Cousteau, who himself now is very active, he's in his 70s and he's very active with his own organization, uh, Ocean Future Society, trying to do o ocean protection and conservation. But he and his father disagreed because Cousteau saw humanity as such a plague that he really did not think that human beings could pull back from the precipice that we had put ourselves on in terms of following our nest. He really saw us as uh, having uh, done so much damage already that there was no way to get back from it. You brought up his son, John McKell, which was actually one of two sons that he had. He did. He, he had two sons. Uh, Jean-Michel was his older son. His younger son was Philippe. And Philippe was killed in 1979 in a plane crash. And Philippe was going to be the heir to the Cousteau fortune, the legend, and the creative enterprises when he was killed. Jean-Michel, who really had uh, been passed, he and his father really just did not click like Philippe and his father clicked, in spite of the fact that Cousteau had a stormy personality, and uh, some people described arguments that he had had with Philippe that were just terrifying in their, in their intensity. Uh, but uh, he, when Philippe was killed, Jean-Michel came in and basically took the reins of the Cousteau society, because Cousteau at this time was in his 70s, and he really was not up for the constant grind of television production at sea, which is, uh, for anybody who's ever been anywhere near that business, you know it's like working in a coal mine. Seriously intense. Cousteau then, by this point, was really flying into Calypso, shooting his scenes and leaving and doing other things around the world, and the television production went on without him. Well, at the same time, roughly the same time, Cousteau began a second family, a secret family, with a woman he had met. Her name was Francine Triplett, and uh, she was an Air France flight attendant. And uh, with her, they had two children in fairly short order. And he lived a separate life with her that was revealed only when his first wife died. And this was the source and the cause for all of the dissonance in the family that eventually resulted in Calypso being abandoned as a wreck uh, in northern France, although recently I hear that she is uh, now being rebuilt and may sail next year. So we'll see. <laughs> what about his first wife? Uh, sure. Simone, her name was Simone Melchior when they met. She was 16 years old. He met her at a party in Paris in the late 30s and were married a year later. They had two children in pretty short order. 
very quickly, as was the style of the time, and they were inseparable partners in all of their adventures. Her family, she was a, a daughter and a granddaughter of French admirals, and her father, Admiral Henri Melchior, became a director of the Air Liquide Corporation, which even during occupied France of World War II was a very powerful corporation, global corporation, providing compressed air and the technology to do all of that, which of course came in very handy when Cousteau was trying to figure out a way to create a demand regulator to breathe air underwater. Simone, after Philippe's death, even before that really, had spent was spending most of her time on Calypso. She rarely, rarely left the ship. She lived there and Cousteau lived his separate life and, and that's the way the family operated at the end. Mm, and she was unaware of Francine until the very end. Or That's uh, generally the, what I know. It's very difficult to know everything. Mm. You, you sort of mentioned that it was difficult for most journalists to get access to this type of information. How difficult or how readily uh, available was the family for talking about his life? Well, part of the family, Jean-Michel and his grandson Fabien Cousteau, were very helpful, as were other members of his earlier crew, uh, André Laban and uh, Albert Falco and Raymond Call and many others I met. I went to France several times to the Mediterranean and met with members of the crew of Calypso. And in and, and several generations, I also met with people who spent a lot of time with Cousteau in the 70s, the 80s, as well as in the 50s, the Halcyon days, and really got my material that way. And there was an, additionally, there's a great deal of, of coverage of written word and film and photographs that I had access to while I was uh, working on this book, uh, which I think that the fact that it took five years, and, or spanned five years, I took a break in the middle to write another book, but that uh, this was on my desk for this long helped out because some of the leads that I have had to talk with people about Cousteau materialized very slowly. Mm. Do you think it was a sort of a concerted reason for this, or trying to protect their own legacy? Well, you know, I, I hate to speculate, <laughs> honestly. Everybody has an agenda. As I told another interviewer, actually it was a, a gossip columnist in the Washington <laughs> Post who really wanted to talk about all of this kind of dirt, I, and I said, you know, if I had decided to follow every vector of betrayal and anxiety and anger and revenge in the Cousteau family, I'd be working at it for a hundred years because the family was full of that. And I, I, you know, I don't really necessarily think that that was my job. I mean, that is a different kind of book than the one I wanted to write. I had to acknowledge all of this. I had to have whatever facts I did have, I had to have them absolutely correct, you know, to frankly state that he had this second family from about this time and that here's what it meant in the end. But at the same time, I, I really was not terribly interested in uh, the goings-on. And I also think that as French families especially really value their privacy, and there, was, there were walls up. It took a long, long time to talk to people. <laughs> so given all that, what do you think is the picture of uh, Jacques Cousteau as a man that uh, listeners should walk away with? Well, I think that one of the things that, for me, that was wonderful about this book is that I, I grew more and more affectionate and respectful of him as I went along. There were a couple of reasons. One I mentioned earlier when we talked off the air was that Cousteau really and truly believed in play, and he believed in living in the moment. 
And one of his favorite sayings was, the road to paradise is paradise. And he had an immense ability to focus on what was right in front of him, and I began to become an enormous fan of that. And so the more I knew about Cousteau, the more I liked him, simply. You know, I really hope I got beyond, you know, the veil of celebrity, which everybody else knows. I mean, you know, everybody can do the accent. I'm sure you can, Charles. You know, everybody can do the Cousteau accent. We can all wear red hats. You know, Bill Murray can play him in a movie and poke fun at him. But there was this other guy there who was just astonishing. And he was so vital. And he was, he, by all accounts that I've run into, he was immensely kind. Uh, he had a for, he had a very very uh, kind feeling for people who approached him just to talk or to recognize him and approach him and uh, he was a fascinating character. Do you think that his message of conservation in the oceans really uh, coming more to the fore of late? Well. <laughs> I, I, you know, I don't know. I wrote a, a kind of a tongue-in-cheek uh, column for, uh, there's a great blog, gris.org, an environmental blog, and this was before the Copenhagen meetings, and I, the, the premise was, what, what would Cousteau do if he went to Copenhagen, you know? <laughs> and ultimately, you know, his legacy is forgotten. I, I, I've given talks at, in oceanographics college classrooms, and, you know, a lot, of these, a lot of young people don't remember who Jacques Cousteau is. They're very interested when you, you realize that. They realize he invented the aqualung, and a lot of people don't know that. And many, the rest of us who, of a certain age, who lived through the undersea world and knew Cousteau as a celebrity, never really understood the complexity. So what I'm really hoping to accomplish with this book is to add some dimension to this fascinating guy. And I hope there's another biography. I hope there are five more biographies of Cousteau. Uh, well, the new uh, book is called Jacques Cousteau, Sea King. And Mr. Madsen, I want to thank you again for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Oh, my pleasure. And you're just listening to Mr. Brad Matson discussing Jacques Cousteau. This is the Grok's Science Show. Coming up in just a few minutes is the Grokatron 5000 and the world-famous Question of the Week. So stay tuned. It's time to play the game, the Grokatron 5000. It is our supercomputer, formerly known as Deep Blue. And today, the Grokatron 5000 has chosen the topic, a deep sea diver or a landlubber. So for the following five people, Grokatron 5000 like to know if you think they're a deep sea diver or landlubber and uh, a little reason why. Okay, you're going to give me the name, right? I'm going to give you the name. All right, go ahead. All right, here we go. Person number one, deep sea diver or landlubber, the golfer Tiger Woods. Uh, he's a landlubber. Uh, you know, he avoids water obstacles. I mean, there's no question about it. How, where else can you go with that? <laughs> All right, number two is the uh, real estate mogul, Donald Trump. Oh, Donald Trump, he's a landlubber, too, I'm afraid. <laughs> I don't think Donald Trump has been below the 50th floor in a building for 32 years or something like that. I don't know. I, I just really think the man is a landlubber. Besides, what would he do with his hair underwater? <laughs> you know, I mean, how could he? He couldn't possibly scuba dive. All right, number three is the actor Lloyd Bridges. 
Oh, Lloyd Bridges, of course, he's definitely a, a, a deep diver. I mean, he pioneered, along with Cousteau, his television series right uh, during the 60s was equal to Cousteau's. He was one of the very first scuba divers on television. Oh, everybody remembers Sea Hunt, uh, which was the name of the show. And uh, there, were, there was such a miracle to going underwater that uh, just doing it s- sold television for a long time. Mm. Number four is the pop star Lady Gaga. Oh, Lady Gaga is definitely a deep diver. There's no question in my mind that that woman is better off underwater than she is anywhere else. <laughs> uh, maybe entertaining the fishes is her uh, true calling there. <laughs> uh, okay, and finally, number five, the President of the United States, Barack Obama. Uh, he's definitely a deep diver. I, I, I think, well, I think actually he doesn't even need scuba. He can breathe underwater by himself, <laughs> is what I understand. I mean, that's the way that man operates. He can be anywhere, do anything at any time, and do just fine. I'm sure he's a deep diver. His powers are truly remarkable. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, Mr. Matson, I want to uh, thank you for sticking around playing our game, the Grokatron 5000, and, of course, talking about uh, the new book, Jacques Cousteau, Seeking. Thanks a lot, Charles. Thank you very much for your time. Bye now. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking. <laughs>